Uh, good evening, everybody. As you can see, I'm severely underdressed. <laughs> no one told me it's going to be a black tie dinner. <laughs> so I hope you will forgive me, but the financial secretary, Mr. Paul Chan, was very sympathetic. He quickly put on a tie when he saw that I didn't have a tie. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for that act of solidarity. Uh, anyway, I'm really delighted uh, to be with all of you uh, tonight because, you know, I've, I've long been a, a supporter of the UWC movement. Uh, two of my children uh, studied at the UWC SEA in Singapore. Uh, I was chairman of the board of the UWC SEA in Singapore for a few years. And over the years, I met uh, many graduates, you know. And I realized that there's something in the DNA of UWC. I'm not sure how Kurt Hahn planted it. I don't know how he did it. But he's effectively planted the DNA of idealism among the uh, young people who are all graduates of UWC. But the great mystery of life that I'm trying to solve now is why is it we have so many uh, idealistic young people and why do we have so few idealistic old people? <laughs> what happens in between, including, by the way, to the UWC graduates? And the reason I raise that is that it also explains a great paradox uh, about the world that we live in. I mean, you all heard Ken Jung's speech earlier uh, where he spoke about the commitment of the UWC uh, to peace. And in fact, if you do a simple Google Wikipedia check, the first line that comes out is that Kurt Hahn set up the UWC so that UWC could become an agency to promote peace in the world. And we all, we all agree that peace is very desirable, it saves lives. We all agree that wars are horrible, they kill thousands of people. And surely, as humanity becomes better educated, partly through UWC, partly through other institutions, we would assume that as we, as human beings become more educated, more civilized, Therefore, that peace would be a sunrise industry and wars would be a sunset industry. And for me, as someone who studied international affairs for over 50 years now, it's come as a sort of, in some ways, a great personal shock for me to realize that the, the truth is the opposite that actually wars are becoming, once again, a sunrise industry. And it's, for me, it's especially stunning that if there's one continent that actually understood the dangers of war better than any other continent, uh, it should be Europe. As you all know, the two biggest wars in the 20th century probably the two biggest wars of all time, World War I and World War II, were fought 
in Europe. And to be fair, to some extent, Europe has learned the lesson. So today, for example, within members of the European Union, even among countries that have fought wars for centuries, Poland, Germany, UK, France, there's no danger of war within any two members of the European Union. That's a huge human advancement. And one would therefore think that peace would be part of the DNA of the European Union. But amazingly, despite Europe's experience, the most vicious war of the world today is being fought on the fringes of Europe, the Ukraine war. And what is even more stunning is that if you read all the books of World War I, they tell you that it was completely senseless to send the brightest young minds from England to go and fight for inches of territory, inches of territory every day while thousands were slaughtered. And we thought they were uncivilized. We are civilized. We will never do that. But today, if you turn on the TV, you see that what's happening in Bakhmut, in Ukraine, hundreds of people are dying, fighting for inches of territory. And so the question therefore arises, why is it the case? Why do wars continue, even though the, all of us have become better educated and more civilized? So I'm going to put forward today, and I must tell you that these are uh, very tentative thoughts, okay? Uh, but I'm going to try and see whether we can work out a kind of theory that explains why wars endure. And as a sort of a first step at working out a theory, I want to say that the reason why wars endure is because there are three almost eternal demons of the human condition that continue to haunt us. They've been around, these demons have been around for 2,000 years, 3,000 years, and I would have hoped that education, learning, understanding, UWC would change everything. But unfortunately, these demons are proving to be far more resilient than all the education that we are providing. So what are these demons? The first demon is the quest for power. I say this because one of the simplest reasons why wars start is ever since human beings organize themselves okay, into societies, whether it's tribes, villages, cities, countries, they would always compete and would always prove that they were the number one power. And if you have any doubts about this, read something called the Million Dialogue, uh, where, the cit where, where the citizens uh, were trying to, of Meles were trying to explain why they shouldn't be invaded by Athens. And the Athenians said, quote, 
The strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. This was said 2,400 years ago and it still describes today. That's absolutely amazing, right? Because if you want to understand why the greatest geopolitical contest of all time the contest between the United States and China is, has not just broken out, but will accelerate over the next 10 years. It's because of this 2,400-year-old quest for power. And it's all about a question about who's going to be number one. And it is actually quite shocking that this cause to remain number one is now supported by some of the best educated people in the United States of America from the very best universities in America, right? They are the ones who taught all of us the principles for keeping peace and harmony and they are the ones pursuing this quest for dominance. And I, I, I mean, I, I must tell you that I was in the United States a few weeks ago delivering an annual distinguished lecture at Boston University. Spent a lot of time talking to some of my old friends in Harvard. And it's amazing how there's this phenomenal groupthink in the United States that says we cannot allow China to overtake us. And I can tell you, I thought all this would be sort of said very delicately, but just two days ago, a friend of mine sent me a video of an interview of someone whom actually I know and I would consider a friend, and he's actually one of America's leading political thinkers. Uh, his name is Walter Russell Mead. He's a good man, I must tell you this. He's a very good man. He's not evil in any way uh, and indeed uh, you know works closely with Kissinger and others and highly respected but in the video that he just that was just released a few weeks ago this is exactly what he said he said for the United States to go from a position of overwhelming superiority to a position of contested superiority will rank as one of the greatest acts of blindness in the history of America. Clearly, when China, in an effort to remove poverty in its country, in an effort to improve the well-being of its people, in an effort to improve the per capita income of its people, ended up threatening the United States of America just by growing its economy. And if you do any kind of rational cost-benefit analysis, right, that you might do in a UWC classroom or in any 
business school program and you work out the costs and benefits of this US-China contest, it just doesn't make sense. The costs are very high. The benefits are very little. And at the same time, if you objectively analyze what the United States needs today more than anything else is to improve the well-being of its own people. For those of you who've read uh, my book, Has China Won? And you know, in chapter 7, I describe how functionally the United States of America has become a plutocracy. I'm not the only one who said that. Paul Volcker, Joe Stiglitz, Martin Wolf have all said that too. And that explains why the United States is the only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50% has gone down over the last 30 years. And indeed, uh, this is a shocking statistic, life expectancy in the United States has come down. So shouldn't the United States be spending all its powerful resources and intellect and will to take care of its own society? That will be the logical, rational thing to do. But they won't do it. They will focus on stopping China. So it shows you that this demon of this quest for power is so amazing. It's alive and well. And believe me, even though I've tried very hard in all my speeches and writings to persuade them to take a wiser course, I'm telling you that I'm failing. We just cannot stop this 2,400 year old demon. Now the second demon is something that we are all more familiar with. It's called money. Why money? Wars cost money. Without money, you cannot fight wars. And of course, the people who get the money are the people who produce the weapons. And they are among the smartest people in the world. Someday, I would like to do a survey to see how many graduates of the UWC are working in the military industrial complex. (laughs) I bet you there will be some, (laughs) unfortunately. And what this does, and I, I completely underestimated this in my analysis and writings, because even though President Eisenhower of the United States of America wisely warned the United States of America and said, beware of the military-industrial complex. If it takes over, America will have war after war after war. And sadly, this is the fact. America has actually fought more wars than any other major developed society over the last 50, 60 years. And there is a military-industrial complex that pushes this Now, this may sound to you like some dark conspiracy theory, 
Fortunately, there's a Harvard professor. His name is Steve Walt. I met him, indeed, a few weeks ago in uh, Harvard. Please read his writings very carefully. He documents in exquisite detail how people, senior people, float through the military-industrial complex, get into government, make decisions, start wars, and then go back to the firms. It's the money circle. And it's real. This is not imagined. So for this military-industrial complex, rising tensions with China are the biggest gift that they can ever get. And to me, again, you know, I was shocked. I thought everybody would uh, realize that it's absolutely futile to spend money on nuclear weapons because nuclear weapons will obliterate all of us. Guess what? The United States has committed to spend another $2 trillion upgrading its nuclear weapons, which we hope will never be used. Now, it's, I got a sign, warning sign at the back that I got three minutes. <laughs> I still haven't got to my third point. I'll rush. The third demon is greed. And I mention that because unfortunately, and I confess, I have been subject to the same vice. I'm not a saint. I too have been greedy in my life. And so I know how easy it is to be greedy. I mention that because if you to answer my question, why is it we have so many idealistic young people and so few idealistic old people, it could be the demon of greed that affects us. But I know you don't, you don't want just me to analyze everything. You want me to give you some answers. So let me quickly suggest to you three things we can do to fulfill the UWC mission of strengthening peace and killing wars. And I believe that that the three things that we can do, number one, is we've got to be aware that there are these demons. Let us acknowledge that these demons exist let us be aware of them, and then we can start to deal with them. If we pretend they don't exist, then you will never slay them. You've got to acknowledge that these demons are alive and well. Two, please don't try to fight these demons with idealism. It'll be, you will lose hands down. If you want to fight these demons, you've got to be as realistic and as pragmatic as the people who are supporting these demons, including those who are supporting this quest for, for power. And you've got to deal with them in a very realistic, pragmatic fashion. And the third thing you have to do if you want to slay these demons, you got to have some influence.
And therefore you must try to seek positions of power and to seek the positions of power as you all know you have to make compromises along the way but if idealistic people cannot be as cunning and as shrewd as the people who are supporting these demons then I'm afraid the world will be a troubled place thank you Today, um, I'm really not here as a moderator, but as a student asking for advice, uh, a student who learns on the job every day, trying to figure out how the world works, a student of history, hopefully. <laughs> um, perhaps allow me to start with uh, Bernard and Teresa. Uh, um, Bernard, you're close to the business community here in Hong Kong, as well as in ASEAN, especially Thailand. How are businesses coping with the geopolitical environment today? Well, obviously not easy. Um, the three demons <laughs> is clearly working. Uh, let me just start off saying um, we, it's not just the business. I think everyone here has been affected by this geopolitical tension. Uh, recently, I was asked by someone uh, from the U.S. whether businesses in Hong Kong, whether they are Hong Kong businesses or U.S. businesses, uh, are worried about the <laughs> NSL, the National Security Law, because that seems to be the the narrative. The rest of the world wants to frame Hong Kong. You know, we have now National Security Law, so we should be worried. And my response to him was, well. Perhaps, maybe, in one or two sectors, maybe are they a bit more concerned? But by and large in Hong Kong, we're not concerned of national security law. But what we do worry about is U.S. sanctions. National security law is a bit actually remote from us, but U.S. sanction is increasingly quite possible as this, this, escalate, this tension continues to escalate. And so we do not want to be caught in this crossfire, right? So a lot of companies are uh, looking at de-risking. So they are considering uh, relocating certain of their uh, business functions away from Hong Kong or from China just to avoid that, ten that potential uh, collateral damage. So, uh, so it's so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate as I can see that there's so much both the U.S. and China, or even the region. And you think about it, uh, together you know, with, Hong, with China and the ASEAN together, we have over 2 billion people, 2 billion people of the rising middle class. China has a rising middle class of 400 million, ASEAN with a middle class of 180, 190 million. And I think we all want the same thing. We want better access to uh, choices better access to healthcare, better access to education, and better quality of life. So we should be pursuing the same thing. But unfortunately, I think uh, Kishore is absolutely correct. Uh, it's not about 
how rational we are anymore. It's the three demons at work, unfortunately. Yeah, Bernard, thanks for that. Um, let's get back to your question of um, sanctions and uh, how, how we can, and, and the question that Professor Mahabubani put forward, how, how we can pragmatically <laughs> deal with these demons. Um, I, allow me to invite Teresa to introduce herself. Teresa, you gave up uh, a very successful career in law uh, to found <laughs> the Peace Generation Fellowship. Tell us a little more about this and, and how it contributes to peace building. Yes, can people hear me? Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, Well, thank you for the opportunity. I come to Peace from a very, very different perspective. The primary reason for setting up Peace Generation in Hong Kong was to fill a gap. Um, Almost every other country in the world, including the National University of Singapore, has peace centers and peace studies. Um, However, to date, there is still no known course on peace studies in Hong Kong. So three years ago, I decided that it would be quite an interesting thing. I could not say it's a good thing because I have very few clues how I was going to go about doing this. But it would be a good thing to actually start a conversation in Hong Kong about how peace would work. Um, So Peace Generation positions itself um, not in the realm of international relations, nor do we talk a lot about inner peace, right, mindfulness and resilience. But we're most interested in peace in the community. And Hong Kong young people are our focus. And actually, as many of you would have observed and agreed, there is a very distinct lack of trust and hope amongst young people. They feel lost. Um, all the things that are going on around them, they find very, very difficult to navigate. So what we do, of course, is to teach the fundamental concepts of peace, positive peace, negative peace, and all that. But the more important thing is to deliver an experience of peace. I'll share a couple of stories, if I may. So we have a fellowship for university students, and they are required to engage the community So one team, one year, we're into our fifth cohort now. So one group decided that they want to go and visit the homeless in Samsoibo. So I I guess many of you would have been there. So they did that. They prepared themselves with pens and paper. And also a shuttlecock, you know, for kicking. Because they wanted to record their observations. I told them, you're not there to provide goods or services. All that you're required to do is to watch and see what's going on. So they took pens and paper to record their observations. Then they took this shuttlecock as a conversation starter because they were awkward, right, young people. So what happened was they went to see the homeless. They were very awkward. Nobody wanted to play shuttlecock with them at all, right? So that was a complete waste of time. And because it was during the pandemic... Somebody was casting around for something to talk about. So one of the students asked a member of the homeless community, have you had a jab? The reply was very, very swift and says, we get jabs every day. Okay, so that was really quite a shock um, for the students. But that humor, albeit a very macabre sense of humor, started a conversation. And when they came back, 
you know, they had pens and paper. They were supposed to write down the hopes and dreams of the hope of the homeless. What happened was that the homeless people actually wrote them words of encouragement. So it was the community that was actually giving them hope. So that was one story. And, and I, I hope you will get from these stories a sense of what we're trying to do at Peace Generation. The second story is this. Another group wanted to deal with the conditions of young people in crammed, divided flats. So they targeted one family, three generations, three people. So there was the teenage daughter, the father, and then the grandmother. And whenever the teenage daughter wanted to change clothes and dress herself, the father had to leave the unit. Right, And grandmother's radio was always on too loud. So our fellows thought, let's go and talk to them. And they came up with lots of ideas. Let's get some designers and architects together and create furniture that can be you know, folded up. We can actually take grandma to a day center. You know, We can get people to donate 24-hour study centers. They had a conversation. And before they could follow up, what happened was it was the first time three members of the family got together and discussed their needs. And they called the students and said, we have decided to do something ourselves, which is to rearrange our living arrangements and clear out our belongings. So from those, you can see what we try to get the students to do is to observe without prejudice, to actually find power in conversation, and then to learn to listen. And all these things actually goes towards trust building, which is absolutely necessary in order for us to try and solve social political issues. Without trust, there can be no conversation and we get nowhere. And we are stuck on positions only. I apologize for the very long window, but but I, I think it's much better to talk about what they go through than go through the concepts of peace for Hong Kong. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's great that we've an initiative such as Peace Generation in Hong Kong, um, and, and I suppose this is also one of the few ways we can pragmatically you know, deal with the demons that um, um, Professor Mabubani spoke of. In fact, um, Professor Mabubani, we realized that this week while you were in Hong Kong, you were also suggesting to us that we need to be psychologically prepared for more volatile times ahead. And perhaps then, uh, let me put forward a question. So in your book, uh, has China one. I've brought it with me, hoping to, hoping to get an autograph later on. <laughs> in this book, um, you wrote that, uh, you know, in face of a great peril to humanity, such as climate change, common sense would have us to focus on common challenges, on similarities rather than differences. But but that seems to be a lot harder to achieve at a country level. I think some of my uh, uh, batchmates here, some of my peers here, uh, would uh, concur with me that every day in our, in our work, we, we are probably dealing with, you know, tricky questions like sanctions, with data localization rules, which are, you know, governments trying to wrestle with, you know, protectioning for themselves rather than, you know, uh, a, a more sort of open-minded approach to uh, other markets. Um, is, is there really a pragmatic development agenda that we can pursue together, at least in Asia-Pacific? 
And then this is a question to all three of our speakers. Uh, but perhaps, uh, Professor Mahbubani, you could make a start. Uh, uh, thank you very much for advertising my book. <laughs> uh, as you know, I conclude the book, if I remember correctly, saying that we all know that climate change is a reality. And we also know that if climate change accelerates, it will make planet Earth uninhabitable for human species. And we, we, and we do know that if we don't do anything about it, things will get worse, right? And so you assume that human beings being the most rational species on planet Earth would therefore be doing something as quickly as possible to save the only planet that they have. But instead, as you all know, that the, we are losing the battle against climate change. And one of the reasons why we're losing the battle against climate change is because the number, number one and number two emitters, United States and China, can't cooperate. So what the analogy I use is that we assume that human beings are smarter than apes. And, but if we see two tribes of apes fighting each other while the forest around them was burning, you say, these are stupid apes. We human beings would never do that. But that's exactly what human beings are doing. We are behaving like two tribes of apes fighting each other while the forest around us is burning. And we have no nowhere else to go to. And this is actually quite amazing. And all and what is even more amazing is that a lot of the science, a lot of the theory, a lot of the data comes from the United States of America. It's the United States that has educated the world on the dangers of climate change. But it is the United States that effectively blocks actions against climate change. And these are the sort of paradoxes uh, that we have to deal with. And that's why I say that we all have to be very, very realistic in handling these challenges. And as, some of, as somebody mentioned that uh, the South China Morning Post reported a speech I gave yesterday to the Singapore Chamber of Commerce, I didn't know it was reported, where I said that, sadly, I wish I didn't have to make this prediction, but my prediction is that the U.S.-China contest will get worse and Hong Kong will become a political football in this contest. So I wish you all well, but it's very important that you be very aware that this is going to happen. You mentioned about your worry about sanctions, right? I guarantee you that there will be more sanctions in Hong Kong. I don't know where they will come from, how they will come from, but they're coming. And that's why I advocate you know, there's a realism in dealing with these challenges because these are really difficult challenges. There are no easy textbook solutions to any of these challenges. Bernard, what about you? What do you think? Oh, well, I guess I have to uh, at least uh, give some hope. <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, I do agree. Uh, today, I think it's almost impossible for any engagement between G to G, right? Uh, 
our FS will probably uh, will agree with us, uh, will agree with me. Uh, G2G is very challenging today. And sadly, it's even spilled over to business. Even business to business these days are challenging. I guess if you are SME, you are not on the radar screen, you'll still be fine. But if you are a large company, like Peter, <laughs> Standard Charter, HSBC, I think you know they will be under a lot of scrutiny, sadly. So I think, um, so my hope though, is still, I think there's still hope. Because no one, at least no politician, both in the West or even from outside the world, dare to say that they are against the people. So they are not against Chinese people. They are not against the ASEANs. So I'm still very hopeful that we can continue to stay engaged with them through ASEAN culture and through education. So there are still space and perhaps in, in sustainability as well. So I still, I'm still hopeful. You know, I mean, of course, I have to promote ASEAN culture now uh, for Hong Kong. And uh, Winnie Tam, our chairman of the Hong Kong Palace Museum, is here too, Winnie. And uh, together with uh, myself, uh, the M Plus, you know, we actually still able to connect to the world. Uh, recently, back in March, um, because you know both museums were open during the time where Hong Kong is somewhat being closed off to the world. So, so nobody actually have came to see both museums because uh, we Amplus was open on uh, November 21, uh, Palace was open. Uh, um, July last year. So neither museum has been really been seen by anyone else. But this past March, uh, we ride on the Art Basel week and hundreds and thousands of the arts and culture world, the people from the world comes to Hong Kong. And that evening, I just want to share with you, I, we hosted a dinner, uh, we call it the Amplus International Week, International Dinner. And at my table, uh, I'm, the, uh, I'm at the second head table. I was so impressed. Seated next to me was the, the director from Tate Modern. And next to her is the head of Guggenheim. And then there are the Picasso Museum head was there, and so on, so on, so on. It's all the top, top arts and culture people from the world all descend to Hong Kong. And I, I, I have to make sure, I asked my museum director, Sufania, I, said, I asked her specifically, do we pay any one of them to come to this dinner? He said, no, 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 they all pay themselves. Because they were all telling me that this facilities we have in Hong Kong is world class. Is world class. And they are going to be our best promoter. It's not for me to promote, but it's for them. Because they came here, they see it for themselves. I'm hopeful that they can still go back and tell the world to come here, to visit us, to see it for themselves, what is actually happening here. So I'm still quite hopeful that there are still areas where we can stay engaged with so-called our, well, I, 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 won't, I won't just say the West. I think it's for the world to come back to see. Right. Engagement is key. Continuous engagement. And, and this sounds a lot more hopeful in the sense that you know, it's not very, it, the, a practical solution does not have to be very complicated. Um, but reestablishing 
uh, human-to-human bonds, uh, something as simple as that perhaps can help us avert uh, a future of conflict. Um, I'd like to uh, ask Teresa a question before turning to the floor for Q&A. Um, Teresa, there are many young parents in the room, and you know, UWC is an education institution. How can we help our next generation understand the value of peace or just, you know, to survive the volatile times ahead? It's actually quite a difficult question because it asks us to question the purpose of education in its entirety, right, if I may be so bold. Um, with the technology we have, it is actually potentially much more efficient to deliver information through machines and to do self-learning. So if we skip all of that and say we can no longer focus entirely on delivering the core curriculum in our schools, then what do teachers do and what do schools do? So that's my first challenge, right? So I, I think we all need to think about it. I, I'm not here to say, of course, you must then, you know, create a syllabus that has, you know, positive education in it or to have certain values and so on and so forth, because it is up to each of us to try and imagine the sort of society we want and the sort of young people we want to come and, you know, be members of that society. I think about peace not as a destination, nor as a state of being. So I need to clarify that. I see peace as a system of thinking. It actually is a launch pad for us to understand conflict sensitivity better, to try and understand human relations better, and then to try and then on that basis build trust, because it is only with trust that we can actually work together to build our society. So, I mean, it sounds like I'm being overly optimistic, but I'm not. And I take my philosophy from a very popular um, mainland Chinese television series uh, in the early 1990s. And what happened was that this, this man and lived with his family, his mother got lost because it turned out that she was suffering from Alzheimer. And then anyway, eventually she was traced. So the family went to see the doctor and the doctor was asked to give his advice. And he said... Well, this is a very difficult situation. Do not be overly optimistic, but never, never, never be pessimistic. So that's how I see what we're trying to do in Hong Kong. Um, it, education is really important, but we need to rethink education. It's not just about feeding information to our young people. It is allowing them to experience how relationships should be developed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we've a, a few minutes left. Um, want to see if anyone from the floor have questions for our speakers here? Yes, over there. Hi, Basil Huang, Pearson College, Year 16, uh, and Vice Chairman of the Singapore Chamber of Commerce. Um, Kishore, I'm sorry I missed the talk yesterday, uh, which was widely reported in the STMP. Um, since we have I, such I a... I didn't know that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Jackie had something to do with it, yeah. So, um, given we have such a distinguished and qualified audience uh, before, before us today, and Kishore, you talked about Hong Kong being a political football, 
And you specifically mentioned um, the possibility of Hong Kong's U.S. dollar reserves being frozen as one of those consequences, okay? Um, someone at my table said this is unthinkable, but in the, today's world, we have to think of the unthinkable. So since we have such a distinguished audience, uh, Bernard, uh, the financial secretary, Elizabeth too, I think, you know, uh, previous incarnation, um, um, what, you know, how realistic is that? And what can Hong Kong do, to, you know, how is Hong Kong going to survive through something like that? I guess that's a question that, that I would like to know. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, he's not, you're not asking us, right? <laughs> we're, we are passing the, we are passing the football to someone else. <laughs> Paul, you want to take a step or? <laughs> Anyway, the, um, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to put Paul on the spot. Really, it's not fair. Um, the, I don't know whether they will actually seize the reserves, but it is a fact, and this has shocked me, that the West did seize half the reserves of Russia, which, by the way, is a nuclear power, you know. <laughs> and under any kind of technical definitions of international law, that seizure was illegal because these reserves are protected by what's called sovereign immunity. And the fact that reserves that are protected by sovereign immunity were seized, you know, is, is clearly crossing a line. And whenever you cross a line, you create a precedent. And when the precedent starts, then it can apply to, to other people. It would be absolutely irrational for the United States to seize the reserves of Hong Kong or to freeze the reserves of Hong Kong or to do anything to damage them because frankly the United States will also be damaged by a collapse of confidence uh, in international markets. So I think that is, that will be the biggest restraining factor. But I, I will also tell you that one thing I've learned about the United States is that many of the policy makers are quite ingenious. So while they may not do such a big bold measure, there are, how do you say, little uh, acupuncture needle points that they will find that can just at the right place do a tremendous amount of, acupuncture is normally used to heal, but you can also use <laughs> the, those, those sorts of uh, pinpricks to do a lot of damage. So I think it's important Hong Kong just I'm not asking Hong Kong to be fatalist, but you must be very, very realistic and acknowledge that there is a danger. And when you acknowledge there's a danger, you then walk more carefully, right? I mean, it's like walking along the path of a mountain, right? Uh, you don't just run along the path of a mountain, especially when it's slippery and wet and so on and so forth. You walk very, very carefully. So the dangers are there, but if you walk very carefully and ensure that you don't do anything rash. And and frankly, you also, the, the lesson I've learned in response to your point, there's a very famous expression that says you should have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. So in when you do your analysis, if it's pessimistic, be realistic. Yes, it's important to be pessimistic. But when you do things, you've got to have optimism of the will. And then this is what I will encourage 
uh, Hong Kong to do, exercise optimism of the will and find ways and means of dealing with what will be clearly a very difficult path ahead. Well, my response to that is uh, quite simple. It's, it's like what I said earlier. Uh, while we don't think rationally this can then happen because there's such, as much American interest in Hong Kong, in this region, so why would they do this to, uh, to hurt themselves? But, as you rightly put it, to have no plan B is also unthinkable these days. I think every one of you in the room, uh, if you're in business, you must have a plan B. I'm pretty sure our financial secretary have a plan B in mind as well. I'm pretty sure. While we hope that this will never happen, that he never have to exercise that, uh, because it's also a lose-lose for everyone, but they must have a plan. We all must have a plan right now. Another question? Thank you. Uh, this is Okishaw. Uh, I'm Carson, Carson Wen. Um, the uh, Indian Prime Minister is doing a state visit to Washington on June 22nd. So how do you see, I, I'm asking this question about India to you because you know the country very well, of course. Um, how is India positioning itself in a new world order where China and America will be at huge rivalry? to each other. And would India become one of the uh, first members of the uh, Asian version of NATO? If Japan is already in, but what about India? Mm. Uh, Elizabeth, I saw a sign down there saying one minute. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to give you a one-hour answer, but I don't know. I'm going to cut my one-hour answer down to one minute. <laughs> well, I think the sad part is that relations between China and India are very troubled. It's very, very clear. And, and I wish that they were better. Because we in Singapore, as you know, Singapore has close relations with China and close relations with India. And Singapore, as you know, 75% Chinese, 15% Malay, 6% Indian. So good relations between China and India is something that we desire very greatly. But clearly things have got a lot worse. And there was, as you know, an unfortunate skirmish in June 2020 where Chinese and Indian soldiers died, I think in the place is called Galwan. And since then, there has been a setback in the relations and certainly there has been a complete uh, erosion of trust uh, between China uh, and India. So I predict that there will be difficult relations between China and India until they can find ways and means of handling the border dispute. But at the same time, I can guarantee you that India will never join NATO. And by the way, Japan has not joined NATO. Japan has only allowed a NATO liaison office to be uh, cited in Tokyo, but not it hasn't joined NATO. And frankly, it would be wiser for we in Asia not to get too close to NATO because the this, this, this track record of NATO has been that it's actually been involved in lots of wars. One of the greatest achievements of Asia over the past 40 years has been there's been the guns have been silent in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and East Asia. That's a remarkable achievement. That's uh, almost 50% of humanity has been at peace. 
And by the way, that's also why I've set up personally uh, something called the Asian uh, Peace Program at the National University of Singapore. Uh, we raised our own funds. Uh, you know, we raised 10 million Hong Kong dollars. I contributed 1 million Hong Kong dollars. I mentioned that because if you look at, uh, at our website, we try to come out every month with concrete suggestions of what Asian countries can do to avoid wars. And we've written a couple of articles on how China and India can build trust uh, with each other. And by the way, some of our suggestions may have actually been implemented. You know, For example, in one of the early articles we wrote on China and India, we said, hey, the reason why there was a skirmish in Galwan is because Chinese were supposed to withdraw some tents. They didn't withdraw the tent. The Indian soldiers saw it. Then the skirmish started. They went up to check. But instead of sending human eyes to check whether a tent has been removed, plant, uh, you know, technological, um, sighting mechanisms. And that can be done. And guess what? That was done. So there are things that can be done to prevent wars, even at the micro, uh, level. And that's, that's why we should, into, if we want to keep peace in Asia, we cannot be passive. We actually got to proactively keep doing things like you are doing, you know, but at, at the level of interstate uh, relations. We in Asia must, if we do all that, then frankly we can have another 50 to 100 years of peace here. Well, give us five more minutes. We don't often get to do this, so let's have one more, let's have one more question from the floor. Anyone else? May I add a reflection oh, yes, please, to what yes. uh, Professor, good Professor was saying? I mean, if, if we look at conventional economies, right, we talk about capital, resources, labor, services. But in modern economies, we need to actually survive with good ideas and knowledge. And with capital, with resources, with labor, with services, we have border constraints, it is not easy to move capital or people around, right, particularly given certain circumstances. But if in the preparation for war, can we have a development agenda where people can actually work on sharing more ideas and knowledge? And I don't mean just between governments, right? Who in your family is best at connecting with people overseas? I would put a pretty good bet it's not you amongst many in the audience, but your children or even your grandchildren. So what are we doing in terms of, you know, harnessing that opportunity of exchange at all levels, not just G&G, in order to create, um, you know, an atmosphere and a desire for peace? When countries go to war, they never ask the citizens. They don't give you the chance of a referendum. Shall we fight or shall we not fight, right? So ordinary people who suffer war the most are never part of that conversation. But that, you know, LPC, um, UWC has started the conversation tonight. And I would hope with your peace education program that we could actually all start to see a role for ourselves in actually making peace. And I, I hope that's also what the National University is doing. We have one question here up front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm yeah. Hi, yes, Kishore, uh, you 
were in a way cutting short your remarks. Um, I subscribe to your recommendation that we need to be practical in dealing with this geopolitical uh, conflict. And also subscribe to uh, Sun Tzu's uh, in the book Art of War. He talked about the best strategy is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Now, America is really a country of power. So you, while we all agree that dialogue is important, communication is important, you will never stop the government from doing something bad. So what recommendation would you have to the governments and also to the businessmen, businessmen like ourselves? What should we do to subdue the other without fighting? That's a very big question, Anthony. <laughs> well, I think the, uh, as of now, my, my sense, and this is, this, I, I, I write this in my book, um, China has obviously decided to be patient, right? I mean, to be fair to China, there are many things that the United States has done that could have been provocative to China. I mean, like, for example, the visit by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan was, in the words of Tom Friedman, dangerous, reckless, and irresponsible. This is Tom Friedman on New York Times said this. So that was clearly a, a major provocation. So the best thing that China could do, therefore, is to not respond to such provocations and to focus, at the end of the day, the outcome of the contest will be decided on which country has the larger GNP. And by the way, the current issue of the economists, if you believe the economists has said that China's growth has peaked and China cannot grow anymore, I find that quite amazing <laughs> and hard to believe. But I do think that if China focuses on its economic growth and development, has a bigger economy, then it can emerge peacefully. And, and I do think that the wisest way to avoid the situation you mentioned, Anthony, of there being a war is for the United States to listen to the advice of a former President Bill Clinton. And former President Bill Clinton said, if United States is going to be number one forever, then United States can do whatever it wants to do. Then he added a part. He said, part if you can conceive of a world where United States of America is no longer the dominant military, economic, political superpower, then it's in the interest of the United States to support multilateral rules, multilateral norms, multilateral processes, multilateral institutions. So the simple answer to your question is that if we can persuade the United States to choose the route of multilateralism, then there'll be no war between China and the U.S. I just want to also add another comment on the, on what Hong Kong can do, right? Because it seems so remote, the U.S. and China and the two superpowers. It's almost like what, what can Hong Kong as a place like, you know, what, we, what the 7 million people in Hong Kong can do? We can do a lot, right? I think we can continue to stay very engaged, not just with ourselves, but with this region, right? We mentioned ASEAN. And why I mention it, because we, we, we now consider, starting to consider ASEAN as a very important partner. They are our second largest trading partner. But how much do we actually know ASEAN? 
ASEAN with the 660 million people, how much do we actually know in Hong Kong? So we need places like UWC to help, to educate our future generation, to better understand our neighbors. How do we treat the Indian nation? Indian nation has 290 million people. Philippines, 115, 115. Thailand, by the way, there's a general election tomorrow. And what would, what would happen to Thailand after this election, right? So I think, you know, Hong Kong needs to stay a lot more engaged with our neighbors, not just with China, not just with the U.S. We have to do more. I think, you know, we need to, we need to build friendship and, and far better understanding uh, between people to people. I think that will help to gain some trust. I think that's the first step. I agree. I completely agree. And I must say, my memory may be faulty, but I think it was in this room that the Asia Society organized a book launch event for my book, The ASEAN Miracle. <laughs> so it's right in this room. And I think you're absolutely right. ASEAN is the most underestimated uh, regional organization. Let me give you two pieces of data. In the year 2000, Japan's economy was eight times larger than ASEAN's. By 2020, it was only 1.5 times larger. By 2030, ASEAN will be bigger than Japan. Statistic number one. Statistic number two, between the years 2010 and 2020, did the $17 trillion European Union economy contribute more to global economic growth? Or ASEAN with its $3 trillion economy contribute more to global economic growth? The answer should be the European Union. The correct answer is ASEAN. Well, thank you very much, um, Professor Mabani, Bernard, Teresa. I guess our takeaway is to keep learning, be brutally realistic, but also stay hopeful and be very open to engaging the rest of the world. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.